partnerships have to be structured with intention, that they have to be built in ways that respect the full and equal dignity and autonomy of each and all of the partners, uh, that they need a, a degree of structure, which often involves things like clear articulation of roles, of processes, um, of values, so that it's not just kind of like people showing up and doing stuff together. It's something more substantial than that. I'm Emily Shields. I'm Andrew Seligson, and welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. Emily, how are you doing today? You know, I'm doing great. I uh, broke my finger this past month, and I got to take my splint off, so. Are you allowed to disclose on the uh, public podcasting waves how you broke your finger? I'm allowed, but it's not interesting. (laughs) (laughs) I I simply went to close the trunk of my rental car and push down too hard. And I don't mean I put close my finger in the trunk. I just mean I pushed down too hard on the top of it. It's so really. It was like your own strength was too much for your raw, own finger. Raw strength. It's yeah. not that your finger was weak. It was that the rest of you was so strong. True, true but it broke quite easily. So I don't know. About that. Uh, I used to break fingers all the time as a kid because just playing all kinds of sports like basketball. It's just like you break fingers when you play a lot of ball sports and you're a small child because the ball is large and heavy relative to your hands. I feel like that's a thing I believe. I'm going to just go with that. Yeah, I mean, my broken bone tally is now two. I broke my collarbone when I was 12. Equally amazing story that I simply tripped over a bike while playing hide and seek. (laughs) So I don't even, it's not even really sports related. I just can't navigate life. Yeah, those simple, are not simple things. sports related, I agree. <laughs> not, it's not that they're not even, they're just not. Uh, yeah. Yeah, because I, well, I, the only bones I've ever broken, I should be knocking on wood, is uh, our fingers. Uh, I've done, I've inj- I used to injure my ankles all the time playing sports and whatever, but uh, never broke bones. We're off to a fascinating start this is really here at the Compact Nation podcast. Amazing content. Um, yeah. Okay, so I missed you guys last time, and you were talking about the uh, Western Region Conference Continuums of Service. And since then, as well, you've been to our Eastern Region Campus Compact Conference. Just came back from that, I think. That is a fact. Uh, Providence, Rhode Island, uh, which is a very fine city in many ways, and it was a good place for our conference. And I'm going to, in a very sneaky, doubling down kind of move, uh, sort of slide a little talk about that conference into our, our last segment today, which is going to be Pop Culture Corner. So people can now everybody's on the edge of their seats and they'll just have to wait for that. And before that, we are going to uh, have a series of conversations that all kind of revolve around a similar theme, which is the theme of partnerships. We're going to uh, dig into what that word means a little bit in our context. We're going to decode a recent report by Iowa Campus Compact that explores 
partnerships between higher education and community organizations in the great state of Iowa. And then we are going to uh, hear about a bright spot, which is a, a an, what a center. It's a center. <laughs> it's a center. Let's leave it at that and, you know, have some mystery. Build the further uh, suspense. Um, yeah, folks might have noticed, though, that we are down a co-host. We are. We're at two. Our typical number is three. <laughs> and that is true. It's because Marisol had a conflict and was not able to record with us. Uh, so we're trying different combinations and permutations, right? Because Emily was missing last time. Marisol is missing this time. I don't have any plans to be missing the next time, but you never do know. Yeah, I don't think either of us had really plans to miss the other times either. So who can say? Who can say? Uh, that, that's really the message that we're bringing today. Real quick today. plug, if folks um, either went to one of those prior regional conferences and loved it and want more or didn't make it and are looking for what's next, we do still have the Midwest Regional Conference coming up this May 29, 30, and 31 in the Twin Cities at the University of Minnesota. And we still have early registration open for that. So... Uh, all hope is not lost when it comes to attending Campus Compact Regional Conferences. That's true. I'm looking forward to that one as well, in part because I've enjoyed previous Midwest conferences, in part because I always liked being in the Twin Cities, which was once my home, and uh, and in part because these two conferences have been really great, and so the third one promises to be great as well. So I hope people will join us uh, out there. Should we talk about partnerships? Yep. Uh, okay. I think, you know, our, our sort of basic theory behind this segment, which we call... What mean? The basic idea is we take words that get used a lot in our world, but often either used in a variety of ways or used in ways that maybe are just never sort of clearly defined. And we say what we think maybe these terms mean. And I think partnerships... Uh, is a good one because it is, I think, foundational to a lot of the ways that many of us think about the work of community engagement, civic engagement. It names something about, I think, our ethical commitments, the idea of like how we ought to be doing this. Um, but also a lot of different things get covered uh, in in the term or sort of it gets applied to many different things and they don't all look the same. And so it seems worth exploring. When I think about this term in our context, one of the things that pops to mind is uh, a set of principles of partnership that I associate with the organization Community Campus Partnerships for Health, which over a long period of time has done a lot of great work on university community partnerships. And uh, although, you know, they sort of are starting from health related partnerships, first of all, they have a very broad conception of health, including community health, et cetera. But also, I think, you know, a lot of what uh, they have helped call attention to has a lot to say to any kind of partnership, whether it's specifically about health or not. And, you know, so these are Googleable and findable online uh, at ccphealth.org. Um, and, you know, I think the the idea that CCPH 
has been kind of advocating and articulating and helping people understand for a long time that I think has now become a norm for many of us is the idea that partnerships have to be structured with intention, that they have to be built in ways that respect the full and equal dignity and autonomy of each and all of the partners, uh, that they need a, a degree of structure, which often involves things like written agreements and, you know, in any case, clear articulation of roles, of processes, um, of values, um, of kind of terms under which the partnership might be dissolved um, so that it's not just kind of like people showing up and doing stuff together. Right. It's something more substantial than that. Yeah, I mean, for me, you know, partnership connotes structure, that there's that there is structure. And so I think often what I kind of go to is more like what partnership isn't. Right. And it isn't simply sending volunteers to someone. Right. That's not a partnership. Now, that may have value in some way, uh, but uh, isn't necessarily a partnership. And I think those are the kind of distinctions that, you know, when I'm out on campuses or talking to faculty or even talking to student organizations and helping them understand what's what's meaningful about this and what they need to be thinking about it is that idea of structure, communication, understanding of goals, shared goals, those kinds of things that really make it um, lean in the direction of true partnership anyway. So what do you think about the question? You know, I remember, so um, I think this struck both of us because I know we were both there for this conversation. Uh, well, in fact, at the Midwest Conference two years ago in 2017, Byron White, uh, who was a keynote speaker at that conference, said something that really stuck with me, which was that um, I think the way he said it was you shouldn't be in any partnership that you can end. And I think yeah. what he meant by that was like if one party has the power to call it off, that they're they're too powerful for it to really be a partnership. It's a different kind of relationship. And um, but on the other hand, we also know that when we're talking to higher education institutions and encouraging them to be engaged in partnerships as a practical matter, they are usually the much wealthier partner in the partnership. Right. They more usually powerful. have more. Yeah. So like when you're working with your campuses, Emily, like how, how do you encourage them to think about th that reality, like acting in ways that are responsible, that acknowledge that power and that heft and that wealth? But that doesn't mean, well, then we can't work with anybody because we always have too much power in the relationship. Well, to a certain extent, it's why we as a Campus Compact in Iowa and Minnesota in particular have really thought more and more about how we need to be working directly with community organizations. Because for me, as an example, is it really partnership if most campuses would have a list of here's who our partners are, here's who we've decided our partners are in some way, shape or form, um, whether that's really been a lengthy decision making process or, or it's just a list of everything. Would nonprofits do the reverse? Like if you went to a nonprofit and said, which colleges and universities are your partners? 
do they feel like they have equal say and like here's who we've chosen to work with from colleges and universities and why and I think that's generally not the case um, so to a certain extent it's about that other side of the coin how are we talking to nonprofits about this how are we supporting nonprofits and encouraging them to really have a plan for why they want to partner with higher ed and understand what they what their interest is in that how they align with that mission what that looks like because again even when we're at the individual level you know have a good mutual understanding reciprocity those kinds of things at this higher level there's just fundamentally different understandings higher ed picks partners nonprofits don't pick higher ed right that's not how it works Although, do you know, so one thing that strikes me, so we had a panel at the ERCC on uh, colleges and universities engaging in different ways in local political life, et cetera. And one of the panelists was Cynthia Oriana, who uh, directs the Office of Community Partnerships at uh, I'm pointing out my window to the University of Massachusetts, Boston, which is uh, downtown from us here. And so... Cynthia was saying that one of the things she deals with here in Boston, because there are so many higher education institutions and they sort of flood the zone of the nonprofit sector, that her she feels like her students who are uh, they don't have as much discretionary time. It's a commuter campus primarily uh, as some of the, you know, compared to some of the other private institutions. Um, they may not have as as much experience because they haven't all been able to do as like internships that stack one. And so she often feels sort of like it's hard for her to get in the door to be the partner. And so it's interesting, I think, in different yeah. kinds of, you know, markets, uh, there are different dynamics and that those create different kinds of power relations. But I think you're right in the in the vast majority of sort of geographic contexts, there's usually a college or university in a place that a lot of people would like to work with because of the kinds of resources it brings to the table. And yeah, that exacerbates some of the the pre-existing power dynamics. Well, and I'll say, you know, just as a real concrete example, We've worked with the Engaged Faculty Institute curriculum and added an element that all the faculty we have go through that have to have a community partner um, agreed to developing a course with them going into it. Uh, they We have a grant so that the, both the faculty member and the community partner organization representative receive a stipend for going through the institute and developing a course together. And it's a part of the institute that they have to sit down together and really create the course together. So part of it is just, you know, how are, where are we creating the time and space for that to happen to really point out to people, you need to sit down and make a real partnership. Here's elements of that. And now here's time to do it. And we've seen a lot of great benefits from that. I mean, the other thing I would say in this context, this was something I've thought about a lot when I was working uh, at Rutgers in Camden was, just thinking about the fact that there are lots of different kinds of partnerships that, uh, you know, may all sort of meet the ethical baselines, but they're they're structured differently for, for different kinds of reasons. So, for example, I've written a little bit about this, but I 
I think I coined this term, but I like it in any case. I like to assert that I coined it and I either did or didn't. Uh, Platform partnerships, which is the idea of like a partnership where you build some infrastructure that enables uh, students, faculty, people from the partner organization to kind of innovate on the platform, to create things that sit on maybe some shared decision-making structures, maybe some transportation that enables people to get back and forth, maybe some uh, staffing. I mean, it could, it depends on what the, maybe a, some pools of money, depending on what you're doing. And when you have a few of those things in place, then you can say to the relevant people in the organizations participating in the partnership, like, what could you do with this? How could we, you know, how can you take your creativity, your talent, uh, the things you're interested in making happen, your goals and start to do things together? Um, and that was kind of one of the, the thing that helped me see it this way was a partnership we had with uh, a group of public schools in the city of Camden where we would just meet regularly. We had a single staff member from Rutgers Camden who was there to facilitate connections. Uh, and, you know, then we just said to the, all those people like in our organization, in the school make things up that that you think you'd like to see happen and let's see if we can do it. Well, I think this would be a good time to transition to uh, a recent contribution that we made to this conversation because it speaks to a lot of these things. So last year in Iowa, we identified some funding to do a study of how nonprofit organizations in the state perceive working with higher education, partnering with higher education. Um, so we worked with a researcher, Dr. Kara Treble-Smith here, and uh, over the course of um, a little over six months, we talked over 300 nonprofits here um, all across the state, a variety of contexts, issue areas, that kind of thing, through um, surveys and focus groups, and just put out a report uh, that you can find on the Iowa Campus Compact website um, pretty recently. And some of the findings, you know, kind of reinforced a lot of what we're saying, but also helped me to think about it in different ways. And one of the big ones for me that I've been talking a lot about is kind of moving not moving away from the idea of reciprocity, but thinking of it differently and thinking of it more as co-creation. And the reason that stood out to me so much is that when we, so in some of the focus groups in particular, we kind of put this idea of, you know, transformation, transactional versus transformational partnerships. And that's a framework from Enos and Morton from some years ago, really about reciprocity and sort of the level and depth of that reciprocity. And that framework really did not resonate with the nonprofit partners at all. And what we ended up finding from them is, like you said, there are lots of different kinds of partnerships and different kinds work at different times. And it doesn't necessarily matter what the depth is or the kinds of activities or how long it is or that kind of thing, because different things will work in different situations. What matters is that we create it together, that the partners sit down and really decide together what their goals are, what they're going to do together and take that time. And that that was one of the most important things um, that people thought made for strong partnerships, no matter the goals and the time commitment and that kind of thing. Um, but what that led us to is that, you know, that takes that takes a lot of time. And one of our study participants said a phrase I love, which was, you know, don't rush the dating phase that often we just sort of jump in and don't get to know each other and make sure it's a good partnership. But all of that means that we have to focus on a small, smaller number of partnerships that we really have to 
narrow down who we're working with so that we can actually commit that time instead of kind of trying to be everything to everyone. So those are some of the things that that stood out to me. We had six um, kind of overarching recommendations. Can I ask one question? When you said that the language of transactional and transformational partnerships, if I understood you right, you were saying it, that language did not resonate with community right. partners. Uh, why not? Like, what about that? I don't know if that became clear. Yeah, it sort of did and sort of didn't. I mean, for one, it was they ended up talking a lot about that in terms of individuals. Um, Were the students transformed? Were they transformed? There was a lot of struggle in connecting partnerships to higher ed to their actual missions. And that told us a lot as well that I think I don't know that a lot of the time those partnerships are really mission driven. They're kind of seen as side projects where it's about the transformation of the student or the people involved in the project or that kind of thing. So it just wasn't something they were very interested in talking about, to be honest. But when we started talking more about creating together and how you want to work with higher ed, that's where there was just more, a lot more um, interest. I think it, it was the idea that I think whenever you present that framework, it seems to be saying that transformational is preferred. And what they were saying is that that's not always the case, right? That there are some times where we do just kind of want to decide together that what we need is this transaction of things, right? And what's most important is that we decided that together, that we created it together. That makes sense. Uh, No, that's interesting. Um, So you said you had a set of recommendations. Yep. So I mentioned a couple of them, focus on quality over quantity. And I would say that's for both, right? So for for, um, community-based organizations as well, uh, you know, that constant theme of empowering them to say no, to say this this partnership really doesn't make sense for us. We're not going to take it on. And I think there's often a fear of doing that. Um, Co-creation, organizational infrastructure, I think is really important. And again, on both sides. So definitely found that um, higher ed or that nonprofits continue to find higher ed to be very complex to navigate and having infrastructure that helps make that navigation simpler and more clear is important. But I think on the um, nonprofit side as well, it is often hard for organizations to invest in volunteer management, but it's really important to have that in place to make sure you're getting what you want when you know, when the thing you're creating together involves volunteers. So thinking about that infrastructure on both sides, um, student preparation, just a really important area. Basically, a lot of nonprofits feeling like they're uh, working with students who aren't prepared for what they want and need from the project and just needing a lot more investment on the front end and a lot more conversation about what that should look like. Um Another big one that kind of arrives from all of that is the need to build in more individuals' capacity for partnerships. So kind of where that what that comes down to for me is that we often talk about partnerships as though, as you said, like they're between Rutgers Camden and the schools, right? But those are organizations. The actual partnerships are amongst all the individual people. And it's about the individual people having relationships. And I think sometimes we think that it's the institutions and therefore one office 
can is can be the partnership or the executive director and the president of the institution can decide to partner and done. Really, it's about we need individual students, individual faculty member, nonprofit program staff, nonprofit volunteer recruiters, other volunteers, all of those people to better understand what a good partnership is and what their role is in that. And I think we've kind of neglected maybe taking that down to that level. Um, And the final big thing is, because you've kind of heard me talk a lot about this involving students, we did find that for the most part in Iowa, the kind of partnerships people talked about do involve student volunteers. That was the primary way that higher ed institutions are engaging um, with nonprofits. And that just, in our minds, then left open lots of opportunities for untapped resources um, on both sides around research partnerships, facilities partnerships, um, many, many different things that that it seems there's not enough uh, understanding of how to approach those kinds of things or what the possibilities are. Well, thank you for sharing that work. I uh, have taken a look at it, and it seems really useful. So, again, it's on the Iowa Campus Compact website, uh, and I'm uh, flipping to the front to see the title, Perceptions of Partnership, a Study on Nonprofit and Higher Education Collaboration. Uh, I won't give you the URL because it's very long, but if you go to the Iowa Campus Compact website, you will find it. All right. As we said, we have a bright spot. Emily, do you want to share a little bit about what that is? So last week, I got to head on over to the University of Nebraska Omaha to the Barbara White Community Engagement Center. I talked to three folks there because this is it's a really great example of partnership and a different way of thinking about it. So um, you'll hear that in the interview, but I'll just quickly introduce. I interviewed Sarah Woods, who's the executive associate to the senior vice chancellor for community engagement, and she's the director of the um, community engagement center. Julie Deerberger is. Uh, the Paul Sather Distinguished Director of the Service Learning Academy, which is a specific element of the center that we'll talk about. And then Tina Han Rodriguez is the Program Partner of Volunteer Initiatives for Inclusive Communities. And that's one of the community partner organizations that is housed in the Community Engagement Center there. So let's go to that interview. So Sarah, Julie, Tina, welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. Thanks for having me in Omaha. I, people can't see if it's us, obviously, but we're in these great KVNO radio studios, and I feel very, very fancy, and this is exciting. So thanks for the warm welcome. Well, you're welcome to be here. Yeah. So Sarah, start off, you know, we're here to focus on the Whites Community Engagement Center here at the University of Nebraska, Omaha. Sarah, how did it get started? Take us back a little bit. Well, I think it came from... Um, two different but very related uh, engagement approaches that UNO had uh, that go back to the 1990s, but uh, focused on uh, both service learning and nonprofit engagement. So on the service learning side, very early on in the School of Social Work here at UNO, uh, a number of faculty uh, became interested in the concept of service learning. They started teaching classes through the school and engaged other faculty and our Center for Faculty Development at that time. Uh, And uh, more and more uh, faculty became involved. And one of the faculty who was involved at that time was a... uh, was Barbara Weitz. Mm -hmm. Uh, She retired, but... uh, 
Paul Sather, who was a colleague of hers in the school, uh, continued and became very active on campus in service learning. So we had this uh, kind of this wave of faculty engagement on service learning, and we ended up with an endowment uh, that supported service learning across campus. So that was happening. Awesome. On the same, at the same time, uh, we had uh, a number of initiatives going on around nonprofit engagement, and we started a small incubator uh, not far from campus where we had a number of very small startup nonprofits housed in a facility that was owned by both the University of Nebraska Medical Center and UNO. And we provided some basic support, but basically these nonprofits had uh, were able to rent the space uh, from us for a, a very low cost. Mm-hmm. And we provided uh, some opportunities for students to get internships and some other uh, opportunities. We had tied them in with some service learning opportunities, uh, but it was off campus. And we found that not having an on-campus site really did not uh, connect our students or our faculty uh, as well as we'd like. So that started percolating up some ideas and some interest, um, both with the Whites family and another local donor to maybe build a uh, engagement center here on campus. So we created a, a, a steering committee. We started looking at other sites across the country. Uh, we didn't see anything that really met the vision that we had, uh, but we started holding some uh, focus groups. We had focus groups with the nonprofit community, with Mm -hmm. uh, faculty, students here on campus. Altogether, we had 25. uh, And one of the first things we heard was, you can't have an engagement center on a campus without parking. So uh, (laughs) we we made sure that we had in our plans uh, a very large visitor lot right in front of the building. So we uh, broke ground in 2012. We had uh, all donor funding. So no state support at all. Mm. And we ended up with a 60,000 square foot space right in the middle of campus uh, with dedicated parking for about 150 people. Uh, And uh, that's where we started. So we are now celebrating our fifth anniversary. Uh, that'll be on the about the fourteenth of April. Uh, we have uh, thirty university, uh, thirty nonprofit partners in the space, uh, ten university partners in the space, and when I say partners, I mean organizations in the space as well. So we think we've uh, done really well in the first five years. That's amazing. So you mentioned kind of these interrelated movements that were coming together at this time around you know service learning, um, community engagement. It's, incubator idea. Julie, you um, lead the Service Learning Academy today. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit more about what that is and how that fits into the center. Absolutely. So the Service Learning Academy has been around since about 1999 in a formal capacity Mm -hmm. at UNO, but we... um, um, But there were service learning courses taught, you know, certainly at, at UNO, you know, well before then. And so we've been, we're celebrating this year's our 20, 20 year anniversary or birthday or whatever you want to consider it. Um, and so our, our office in the service learning Academy kind of serves as we would consider one of the anchor organizations of, in the building. And, um, I think that being in that space has been able to continue to help to develop that. So we teach about, we have approximately seven between 75 and hundred service learning courses each semester that are taught here at UNO. And we work really diligently to make sure that we're, our community partners are leading the charge in that, that we're really providing rigorous, thoughtful, um, service learning experiences that pr- not just project based, but are also helping to inform and change capacity of our community partner organizations and change what that looks like in Omaha. 
So then, Tina, I'm curious, who are the partners in the building? It's um, Inclusive Communities, uh, Omaha Girls Rock, Omaha Public Library. Who else is there? YPR, Mm -hmm. so many nonprofits that we get the chance to work with. um, And it makes it so easy. If I need to talk to Omaha Girls Rock about a workshop that we're doing for them, I get to just walk over and say, hey, Kat, do you have a second? Yep. Mm -hmm. There you go. I think we spend too much time emailing people and not enough time actually having face-to-face conversations. And the Community Engagement Center allows for those face-to-face conversations to happen. So that real relationship building. Yeah, absolutely. Relationship building and how can I help you do what whatever it is that you're doing? So Sarah, how do they get selected? How does that work? So early on when we uh, started thinking about the Engagement Center, we also started thinking about what values uh, would that center have? Mm-hmm. So uh, we also had, when we did our focus groups, we also ha- started thinking about what uh, what were those kind of underlying uh, ideas that would shape how we operated. And uh, we identified uh, seven. And then later we validated them once we had actual partners in the space. But the values are things like diversity, collaboration, reciprocity, a welcoming atmosphere, et cetera. And those values are what we use now to select our partners. Okay. So we have a community university committee. Uh, We ask applicants to respond to a request for proposals that really the questions are based on those values. So, for example, we ask, uh, how would you um, how would you uh, uh, celebrate the diversity of your organization and how would that diversity support uh, that in the building? Or how would you uh, collaborate? How would you collaborate with other partners in the building and what would you bring in terms of resources and strengths to the organization? Another thing we focus on is the relationships they would have with the campus. Okay. So that reciprocity idea. Mm -hmm. Uh, So those are the those are the elements that we use to identify both campus and uh, community partners. So it's not just space, but it is free space. (laughs) Uh, The space, you know, our our partners, our community partners, do pay rent. Okay. But the rent is uh, reasonable. Yeah. Uh, And And that's tough to find for a nonprofit. I know that. And we factor Mm -hmm. in the idea that we are asking for uh, a reciprocal benefit to the campus, too, because uh, we do have this uh, expectation that partners will find a way that's relevant to their needs, but they'll find a way to interact with the campus. So okay. through service learning or through identifying volunteer opportunities or working with faculty, they'll find ways to interact with the campus. Mm-hmm. And, and we want, factor that into the price of the rent. And you want to know they're committed to doing that, yes. interested in doing that. Yes. Okay. Yeah, so we talk about it being a place, not just space. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Wait, you know, the, the, I know the incubator term was thrown out at one point. So is it is it a short-term relationship? Is it a long-term relationship? How long can they be there? Oh, that's a great question because originally <laughs> we thought about three years. Okay. Uh, with the idea that the organizations would move in uh, and then they would leave after a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And we also talked about the idea of an incubator. But the what we found is that the type of organizations that move in are very uh, different. So we have organizations that have been around, like inclusive communities for what, Tina? 80, 81 80 years. years. Wow. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. It's small, but it's mighty, mm-hmm. right? 
right? Mm-hmm. It has a huge impact on Omaha, but it's not a real big organization. And then we have some that are brand new. Uh, literally, they've only been around in Omaha for a couple of years, and they do need some capacity support. So, But everyone comes with different strengths, different needs, and different opportunities to share. Uh, so we have a, a, what we found, though, is three years is not enough, mm-hmm. really not. So what we do ask is that they reapply on a, with a simpler application after three years, tell us what they've gained, what they've learned, what they still might need. Uh, and now uh, some of those organizations are approaching six years. And now we're saying, OK, now what? And we're now asking organizations, well, OK, so go ahead, apply again. Uh, but we also know that some organizations are going to need to move out and make space for others. Uh-huh. Uh, and it, it's a, a tough line. It is tough, yeah. you know, because we know these organizations. We we have great relationships with them. Uh, but we also know that there's probably organizations out there that want to move in. And so we need to say goodbye to some partners and open up space for others. Yeah, that would be a tough decision mm-hmm. to make. So. Tina, Inclusive Communities, mm-hmm. tell us more. So Inclusive Communities was originally started in response to anti-Semitism here in oh, Omaha. Okay. It was a businessman. His name is Otto Swanson. And then he was approached by other businessmen. And they said, we're going to boycott all the Jewish-owned businesses in hopes that they will go out of business and leave the city. And he decided that he did not agree with that. So he started what was originally the Midwest chapter of the National Council of Christians and Jews. Mm. So um, we focused focused on faithism in the beginning. Over the years, our mission has evolved, and now it's to combat prejudice, bigotry, and discrimination. Seems important. Yeah, and we do that a lot of different ways. Um, But the one that I think is the most... um, the most involved with the Community Engagement Center is our Omaha Table Talk series. So we do it at least once a month. It's absolutely open to the public and it's free. And we like to call it Uncomfortable Conversations Over Comfort Food. So you get to just come in, have dinner, and we have a conversation about something that we think is relevant to what's happening. So our next one is around faith and the LGBTQ plus community. So some of our partners with that are going to be First United Methodist Church. So as we all know, the Methodist Church just had this really um, controversial decision. And a local church here has already come out and said that they do not agree with that. They will continue to um, honor same-sex marriages and continue to be supportive of that community. So they are going to come to the Community Engagement Center and be a partner with us on that Omaha Table Talk. So, yeah. So how, how does that organization benefit from this partnership? I think from getting the getting the message out, there will be a lot of LGBTQ plus folks present at that specific table talk. And it's a place for them to say that we welcome you. We are an affirming congregation. We want you to be a part of, of our church. Okay. So, I mean, really, that's what they get out of it. And I think that that goes both ways then. We, you know, faith is a really dividing thing in the LGBT community because there has been so much rejection that folks have experienced um, from different churches growing up, things like that. So um, giving people the opportunity to kind of align who they are with the church, if that's something that's important to them, is is really valid. And so, oh yeah, sorry. Yeah, Julie, no, no, I would also add how important that, that this kind of uh, organization and this kind of a conversation is right now, mm-hmm, especially yeah. in our divided um, world. I just saw Andrew had tweeted out at the Eastern Compact some really great conversations that they're having at that yeah. conference about mm-hmm. how we can bring folks 
folks together that disagree mm-hmm. and how we can make sure that we're talking. We have facts. We have mm-hmm. information that's um, fact based and how we can look at what what is real and what is truth and mm-hmm. um, and disagree on some of these things. And sure. really, um, I think that table talks is one of those strategies and the myriad of ways that we can look at how we democratically agree and disagree with each other. And I think that collaborating on a college campus, having these kinds of conversations around different topics that bring Mm -hmm. diverse folks into campus Mm -hmm. and engage our diverse student body as well and teach them along the way. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's really cool about the project that um, Tina's talking about is it engages K-12 kids. And so we're even younger, Mm -hmm. making sure that we're having these conversations and teaching them um, how to disagree and how to come to not even a consensus, but to articulate their opinions Mm -hmm. in in a space that that is designed to do just that. Learning how to have dialogue, right? I think that um, one of the problems that we have today is that we have forgotten how to have dialogue. We only have debate, and for the most part, we do it behind a keyboard, Mm -hmm. as opposed to -to face-to-face conversation and how can you talk about something that is very emotionally charged, um, but still respect other folks' opinions Mm -hmm. and be open-minded enough to learn. So, yeah. So, Julie, how does that, all of this then interface with with faculty? You know, so is Mm -hmm. there thinking about service learning courses is it, well, we really want you to work with these partners or we make it easier for you to work? I mean, (laughs) how does that interface? Absolutely. And so we try to meet all of our folks where they are at and also make sure that we are connecting you know, going to meetings, not only in the community, but also here on campus. But we also then are able to walk down the hall. I think what that's the really unique mm-hmm. piece about the Community Engagement mm-hmm. Center is that, you know, when I'm having coffee with somebody and um, and I can just say, hey, you know what? Let's just swing by. This sounds a lot like you're dealing with an issue or you want your students to learn something that I know, for example, Inclusive Communities is working on right now. That's a major initiative that they've communicated to us. That's really something that's top of mind that's going to move the this issue forward forward. And I know that you're on the cutting edge of that as well. Let's just go down and meet them. The, it takes a lot of that coordination away. You know, oh, if it's too much difficult, even sometimes just getting schedules lined up oh, and absolutely. it's, you know, a month away. So it's and then they go down and they meet somebody like Tina, who is really lovely and really engaging and, and is already doing this work. And then they can say, think about their coursework um, and, it, and it makes sense to them. And so I think that that's one of the best things about having the community engagement center on campus because it does demystify not only the organizations, but it gives a personal relationship to the folks that are here. Um, our faculty are also starting to really, I think, connect to the community engagement center, hold their own meetings in that space. And so over time, we're able to see the depth of those relationships change over. And I think that that's different because we do have faculty space within the building, some faculty that are serving as fellows, faculty that are serving as researchers. And then they're able to also then get into those more complex relationships as it relates to research, as it relates to, you know, maybe grant work, okay. those kinds of collaborations a little bit faster than they can when. So, yeah. Do you see more of that happening then? Because one of the things we found in the study, at least for Iowa, but I do think this translates is that often when, you know, when nonprofits are thinking about partnering with higher education, they're, they're just thinking about student volunteers. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's the main focus of the partnership. Mm-hmm. That's not 
bad at all. That's a big focus, I think, for the higher ed side as well. Mm-hmm. But then it seems like there's so many un, there's so much untapped potential in terms of faculty research, faculty mm-hmm. expertise. So do you see this being a way for more of that to happen? Yeah. And I think that we, we can help to lead the way in helping those faculty to understand um, that, that, that those are options as well right. and um, encourage them, but also make sure that they are building these really trusting, thoughtful, intentional relationships that, you know, the first thing that you say is maybe well, and I want to do all this research because I need to get tenure as well, mm-hmm. you know. And so there's there's a really thoughtful way that the community engagement center, first of all, is set up. I think to be thoughtful about who's in the space, how we collaborate. Sarah mentioned the values related mm-hmm. to that, mm-hmm. and then um, and then we're here to also help guide that and, and encourage that that relationship. Now, in some cases, the relationship immediately is we're really interested in digging into this research question, and we are always encouraging and. Um, um, we also want to um, role model that the community partners have all these questions and that, that the, yeah. they're really the ones with their ear on the ground here. Let's, you know, your question is great, but maybe let's couple it with the, these partners who are here really doing this mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. And then I think we're seeing more and more of that happening. And I, and I, and like I said, I just think it happens a little faster, you yeah. know, because we are in the building. We see each other on the way to the restroom. Mm-hmm. We, we walk by meetings all the time and, you know, it's pretty much glass inside the CEC. There's just really, we always joke, nowhere to go to cry either because, you know, it's all see-through. It's actually the lactation room if it's open. Oh, yeah. 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 That room. Hopefully that doesn't have glass. No. No. Okay. Yeah. So why a physical space? What what really, you know, because a lot of, some of what you're describing, you could uh-huh. say like, okay, that could happen without a building. What's the what's the value of the building? Well, I think the, val- the building plays a lot of roles. So uh, one thing, so we have uh, 25 separate spaces for meetings and we have made that space available for community. Uh, And it was funny when we first started designing this space, my boss, who's the senior vice chancellor for academic affairs, he came into my office one day and he said, what if nobody comes? (laughs) And then later he said, I think people are going to come. And I said, yes, I think they will. So we have. I'm from Iowa. If you build it. uh, They will come. Right. Right. And they did. So we have about 10,000 events a year right now taking place. And there are days where we have as many as 40 different meetings. And that means we have as many as uh, we've had uh, about 100,000 visits in the building a year. Uh, And you think about just what that means, because universities are often so inaccessible to the Mm -hmm. public. So just from a, uh, I think, a standpoint that the university is now of the community, as opposed just to a a place where people drive by and can't get in unless you go. Um, The other, another reason why a place is I think about yesterday where we had uh, about 25 different events taking place. And one of the events that took place was a service learning event, I believe, where we had um, an organization that's in the building called uh, P4K, which stands for Partnership for Kids. And they had a collaborative event with our, one of our uh, learning communities communities called the Goodrich Scholarship Program. Uh, All of the students in that scholarship program served as mentors for about 258th through 10th graders. And these kids are students who are being uh, are in mentorship programs, but they uh, the focus was on connecting these kids to future careers. So upstairs in all our meeting rooms, Mm -hmm. we had people who were future employers and we had uh, 
uh, all of these kids who, many of whom maybe don't see themselves on a college campus. Right. Mm-hmm. So they got tours, uh, and they were in this building. And I believe really strongly that when you see yourself on a college campus, you can imagine yourself as a college student. Uh, so we had that going on. Um, and uh, we also had um, uh, meetings of uh, boards of directors. We had, uh, you know, we and, and any day we could have a U.S. senator. But we, we bring people to the campus. Then we combine this with our, our fabulous partners who... Uh, are operating on our building, connecting every day. And then uh, we have uh, uh, dozens, if not hundreds of nonprofits that are coming to our campus uh, to connect just just for that meeting opportunity alone. Then we serve as a portal. So Yeah, we, yeah, uh, talk yeah. about this. Okay. So, okay, so, so let me just mm-hmm. connect it back to the study because a big thing we found, not at all surprising, is just the continued nature of how complex nonprofits mm-hmm. find higher ed to be in terms of navigating, understanding the silos. And I loved, you know, in some of the stuff I was reading about the center, it was described as a portal, Mm -hmm. not a container Mm -hmm. or a net. And I love that language because I think a lot of the concern sometimes when you create a center is... Like, oh, that's where this happens now. Mm-hmm. We're, we're all, none of us have to do mm-hmm. anything with it. That's where it occurs. Or we have to go through them. And it's now it's this huge bureaucracy of like, well, we can't do anything unless mm-hmm. it's with the center. So mm-hmm. how does the portal concept kind of speak to those things? So we're super sensitive to that idea yeah. that we are a container. So the idea of a portal means uh, that we are here to connect the campus to uh, no, the community to the campus and all of its resource, resources and vice versa. So mm-hmm. uh, we there's multiple ways. So, for example, Julie has a terrific community liaison who uh, can connect uh, faculty to needs in the community and vice versa. Uh, and uh, we also have in the building uh, uh, the second uh, person who works uh, directly with me is our manager of possibilities. So she connects our partners to needs in the building, but uh, needs in the up to, uh, I'm sorry, she connects our partners to uh, campus resources, but she also will connect anyone who contacts uh, the engagement center to resources in the at, on the entire campus as well. So if someone calls and says, I need a, I'm looking for a faculty member who can support me in X, she'll be that person to connect them. Okay. Uh, then we, we just are finishing. In fact, it's almost up, but we have a, a uh, an engagement roadmap on the on oh, our website that okay. we've developed uh, that'll soon be on our engagement uh, uh, link on our overall UNO website. But we've uh, basically it is a web based tool that people can go to if they're looking for engagement resources at UNO, and uh, ask them, "Are you a faculty member, a community member, or a student?" Uh, and based on who that identity is, we guide them through a series of questions uh, and we explain, if you're looking for service learning, where you go, uh, what service learning is, and uh, uh, and then we guide them that mm-hmm. direction. If they don't know, we explain what a volunteer is versus a service learning, or mm-hmm. we just kind of guide them to different resources. Oh, that's so we've nice. been able to do all of that through the Engagement Center, okay. but it's not, uh, we don't by any means limit people. Yeah. Um, we have 525 separate community partners at UNO that we've counted, and we know there's others out there that yeah. we just don't know about. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we tried at, in the engagement center simply to uh, help people, uh, help community individuals, whoever, find the resources they need wherever they need at UNO. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I would, yeah. I would also add too that the building is important because relationships are important, and at the end of the day, it is about 
individuals with individuals and we can send emails and we still do send emails, but the, those, the depth of those relationships can only happen when we know each other, not only as professionals doing our work, but also as individuals and citizens that are making this community better. And so other kind of informal relationships you know, little clubs have been established as a result mm-hmm. of some of these folks coming yeah. together. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure relationships, you know, romantic and otherwise friendships have established <laughs> as well. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I think that that, you know, that, that you, you can't do that unless you're face to face with somebody. Sure. Mm-hmm. Tina, what does that look like on the, the, you know, for inclusive communities? What does that look like for on your side? Our relationships. Well, how do you, mm-hmm. what, what would you, how would you describe the difference mm-hmm. like before you were in the yeah. center to after in terms of your relationship to UNO, for to sure. higher ed, that kind of thing. So um, to be perfectly honest, I don't know. I've <laughs> only worked for inclusive communities in the community engagement center. But um, I did want to say that I think another reason why the building is important is because it's very, very beautiful. Um, it's such a nice space and there's artwork everywhere and it's there's always um you know, so much going on. So there's always tons and tons of different kinds of people just walking around the CEC. Um, I went back to school for a nonprofit in my late 30s, and I would always go to the Community Engagement Center to study before my class. And I just loved um, being in this space. And I would think I would just really would love to work here. This is such a beautiful building. And now I get to get up every day and I get to go and I get to work at the Community Engagement Center. Um, I never really thought that it would happen, but it did. So... Well, that that's so my, interesting. That makes my heart happy. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, even just there's a room that has this giant piece of art that says collaboration. So they really put their values um, physically into the space. And you can see it and you can walk down the hall and you can see someone um, that you work with really closely. And you can just feel inspired for that day. And you go back to work and you're like, all right. I can do it. (laughs) You know, that is really actually interesting because I think often in the nonprofit community, it's not the case. You know, you're getting space wherever you can find space and your Mm -hmm. chair is broken and you're in a basement somewhere. And it's like, well, this is just what it's like. We're working hard and we don't have any money. And it's Mm -hmm. like, well, why not? Yeah. Why why shouldn't you have a beautiful place to go? You definitely could feel really isolated working in nonprofit Mm -hmm. if um, you're not in our, you know, if you're not in our space and feel just alone in the fight. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, we deal with really heavy stuff at our job. We're constantly thinking about systematic oppression and institutional racism and that stuff weighs you down a little bit so it's nice if you can just walk outside look around at you know the pretty landscaping take a second for yourself and then go back in and you're like okay yeah yeah it helps definitely and you know a lot of the the, so some of the things that uh, a lot of what Tina's talking about was really intentional so we really wanted to reflect the, the, the best ideals of public service and uh democracy. So the idea that the building is uh, filled with glass, we really uh, wanted to show transparency, right? So we say that if you don't want uh, what you're doing in your meeting to be viewed by the public, don't meet here. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, we do have some organizations that haven't met in the building because they were doing something that they felt needed to be hidden, you know, and that's, under you know, if you're having some kind of secret meeting, 
I guess you can't. But we say that that's why we don't have many uh, covers on our windows. Uh, we really value civil dialogue. And this is something that I think uh, Inclusive Communities has helped us with so much, is that we really expect a civility and we expect a welcoming atmosphere. And all of our partners contribute to that. So, uh, but... Uh, when people come into the building, we ask our partners, greet everyone. And and mm-hmm. so everyone contributes to that really positive atmosphere uh, that uh, every voice is heard, that people treat each other respectfully and kindly, and uh, that all of our partners uh, treat anyone, you know, that can be a, you know, a little child. And we do have, we've had a little bit of babies in our boardroom Mm -hmm. and we've had, um, you know, senior citizens uh, dancing in our atrium. We've had these really great things happen in that space. And every, we really emphasize that everyone is welcome and everyone is, uh, can use our, you know, our beautiful boardroom or uh, crawl on our carpet. It's all okay. Uh, I do have an issue with pizza hands, but everything else is is okay. Because there's so much glass. Right, right, glad. Oh, yeah, it is a problem, but it is also. I think we you know we just want to reflect that you know the space is, uh, is is uh, for everybody and for all purposes as long as it's for uh, for good. So right. we don't allow things uh, that uh, you know for commercial purposes, mm-hmm. um, but we do allow just about everything else to take place in that space, and it's really I think it results in this really positive uh, feel. So five years in, what do you know? Uh, well, we know that our, our our partner organizations tell us that it's had a positive impact on their um, operations, on their target populations, and on their sustainability. We ask them every year uh, because one of our values is continuous improvement. We ask them a lot of questions, and they very, uh, I think, happily respond to our surveys. Uh, and we really try to use their feedback uh, to improve what we do. We really try to live our values. So uh, we share their feedback uh, and uh, try to modify what we do according to what they tell us. Uh, one of the things we did is that we created an, uh, uh, an internal advisory committee that would be more responsive more immediately to some of the things that they bring up and tell us to do. Um, we uh, we know that also that people who use our building for meetings and such, uh, we just found this out, tell us that because of the building, uh, they're more likely to send their student to refer students to UNO. Uh, they wow. are more likely to advocate for us. Uh, and that is really important for us. You know, it is a tough time to be a public institution. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a tough time to be a public institution in Nebraska. Mm-hmm. And uh, having, uh, knowing that, and we, we this survey was of people who organize events in our building. But we'd like to think, uh, if we have 100,000 people in our building every day, uh, if we're getting this positive uh, uh, impression from people who organize, we like to think that's a positive impression that at least... Maybe half of the people who are coming in share. And if they are all getting, uh, you know, hopefully people are much more likely to advocate for us now, maybe as a result of the space. And that is a really good feeling. Well, yeah. And it's so important to connect those institutional Mm -hmm. priorities Mm -hmm. that are really vital at the Mm -hmm. moment. It tells us, I think, that the work uh, that we all do, and this includes our partners, is is important, that collaboration uh, Mm -hmm. is important, that, and I, I think from your report, uh, 
you know, this idea of co-creation. Mm-hmm. I really liked uh, this idea of co-creation over reciprocity. And, mm-hmm. you know, reciprocity is one of our values. And I told, we had a meeting this morning of the partners, and I said, maybe we need to kind of step away from the idea of reciprocity, which I've always loved because of Boyer, right? Yeah, Boyer. yeah. It is. But, uh, and maybe we need to think more, uh, talk more about this idea of co-creation and collaboration mm-hmm. more. Uh, we always talk about collaboration, but maybe I need to back off my reciprocity <laughs> and think, uh, just embrace the collaboration idea more, uh, even more than we already do. But but I think that's where, and this idea of foundation, uh, the foundational thing, which I think we uh, have in the CEC, but I, uh, uh, that foundation is so very important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So thinking to the future, what are you most excited about? What do you think it holds? And what do you, what's on your mind? Julie? I'm really excited about how we can better research, how we can better Mm. provide capacity and solutions to real issues that we know exist in Omaha, that other communities struggle with as well, that are, we can kind of connect our assets in spaces more efficiently, more thoughtfully, and um, kind of share out how that has happened and um, hopefully get a better sense of what the, those formulas are. I think we're trying out a lot of these different formulas over time and that that we're on to some really exciting new spaces related to that research, related to those community solutions, um, because we've built the foundation of those partnerships, those relationships, and and have the right, I think, folks looking at those issues together. Yeah. I'm really excited about that. Yeah. Tina, how about you? Our focus is always um, expanding our impact. So I'm excited to see how we can continue to expand our impact, how we can get just more and more people to come to the CEC mm-hmm. for all of our, not only our events, but all of the events that are being held. Um, and just get the community more involved, you know, like we've, we've touched on a university can feel like this really intimidating space. So it's nice that we have parking, which, I mean, if you know anything about UNO, that is a really touchy subject. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I think but, a lot of yeah. <laughs> but for folks to know that you can come here, you have a place to park, the building is completely accessible, it is extremely inclusive, and um, if they can come to the Community Engagement Center and start to get involved a little bit, like you said, they can see themselves on this mm-hmm. campus, they can see themselves not only you know going to school here, but working on this campus and just being more engaged overall. Mm-hmm. Just, Do you think that's more of a Midwestern thing? The parking thing, I mean. Oh, no. <laughs> I, mean, I, feel, I just feel like in the Midwest, it's like, if I can't park five feet from the right. building, I am enraged. Well, possibly right. because we all have cars, yeah. right? Yeah. And if you go to other cities, not... Exactly. People don't yeah. have cars. We all, I mean, we'll all drive to the same place and everyone will drive separately, right? So it might be a Midwestern thing. <laughs> I just need, I need to be able to escape on my own terms. <laughs> yeah. Sarah, possibly. how about you? Well, uh... You know, the fact that I survived the first five years is such an accomplishment because it, you know, I always felt like I was on a ski jump and just up in the air and hadn't landed yet for the first couple of years. So <laughs> the fact that I survived the first five years, I'm always, uh, that to me is such an accomplishment. But I think about, when I think about the future, you know, I get so excited about uh, students today because, I, you know, I see this tremendous spirit of service with them and, mm. uh 
despite all of the challenges that we have and some of the things we've wrought on them, you know, all the things that, you know, they're going to have to deal with. I, I, what I love about them is their openness. They're, uh, you know, they are uh, such a, so, so open to diversity and to inclusion. And, uh, and I do believe that they, they approach service uh, through service learning or through volunteerism with these open hearts. And I really do think they are, they want to solve uh, issues that maybe, again, we've left behind. So I, I look at our building as a way that maybe can be of service to them and to all these great nonprofits that we have in the space now, but also will come to our space in the future. All the great young faculty, uh, especially that are coming to UNO and, and in higher ed in general, but that have so much enthusiasm about uh, making the world a better place, mm-hmm. uh, and I just look forward to that. Uh, yeah. I think we, I think we can serve them. We can support them, and I, I just, am, I'm very excited and encouraged as I, as I look forward. Yeah, well, mm-hmm. me too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, we yeah. start young, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I just did a so in the CEC is the Office of Civic and Social Responsibility, which I love that name because I love yes. that you know it is a, it's all of our responsibility, mm-hmm. right? So uh, just. A a few weeks ago, they had a work day. It was all these high school students that came in. And, and college was, students, too. Yeah, yeah. high uh-huh. school, college students. Know. They uh-huh. came in and I had a project and they, you know, it was two hours and they did something that would have taken me months, even with the help mm-hmm. of, you know, 10 to 15 volunteers because I had like 25 students wow. and they just knocked it all out in a couple of hours, right? And um, that is so it's it's inspiring to see that these you know really young people are willing to dedicate their time to volunteer and they're willing to dedicate their time to come in and be a part of it. I think that's a really important point Tina too that you mentioned because we have been really thoughtful about being you know that portal for first um, students and it also means like that we are connecting our lifelong learners. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that earlier as well, but we're also having once when we have these events on campus and we have these opportunities for students to connect and build these skills earlier and earlier, they're also seeing themselves on campus. So Mm -hmm. if they're coming here for the P4K event, or if they're coming here for a service learning collaboration as a K-12 student, or as um, even as somebody involved with one of our student or our organizations that are our partner organizations or organizations that's just using the space, this space is different now. Mm -hmm. It is, people are coming for a lot of different reasons, but they're also seeing campus as a place for them and opening it up through mm-hmm. parking through that space does allow them to to and then they see a college student walking by and th- that they are continuing to see themselves in that space and it's I think unique about the yeah. community engagement center as well For sure and that idea that this is about serving and this is about making the world a better place mm-hmm. uh, the, I don't know if there's any real space in Omaha that really a hundred percent is dedicated just to that mm-hmm. you know we've had yeah. we've had some incubators in the past uh, in in town, but I'm not sure we have one now that's 100% uh, all about good. I don't know. Is there? But but uh, the fact that... <laughs> I don't that, think so. No, uh, uh, but, but uh, 
and you mentioned again, I want to make sure we, we do attend to the Office of Civic and Social Responsibility, mm-hmm. which is another key part of mm-hmm. the building, which focuses on volunteerism and building student leadership around the idea of civic uh, engagement. And they do a great job and they have, you know, they engage hundreds of our students a year in all kinds of great service days and volunteer opportunities, right. both in the building and outside. So nice. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you all for having me here today. We will share uh, in our show notes how to find out more about sure. the center and yeah. and your and in inclusive communities and everything you've mentioned so that our listeners can learn more. So thank you for your time. All right. Uh, it is always, uh, for me, fun to take a little, even if it's a virtual visit, to University of Nebraska Omaha, where they're doing great stuff. So thank you very much, Emily, for taking us out there. And our last order of business is Pop Culture Corner. And I am going to uh, be the first in the corner. I don't know if that's, do we get into the corner and then we say stuff from the corner? Uh So, uh, and I think I hinted at the beginning uh, of the podcast uh, that I've got a kind of subterfuge approach here where I'm sneaking in some talk about the Eastern Region Conference. So the, my particular item for Pop Culture Corner is a book. Um, And, you know, it's pop culture broadly construed because it's a serious book, but it is also a book for uh, it's not an academic book. It's a book for a general audience. It's an extraordinarily well written book that reads really fast. So the book is by Danielle Allen. It's called Cuz, like spelled C-U-Z as in a, a, you know, nickname for a cousin. Uh, And the subtitle is The Life and Times of Michael A. And. Danielle Allen was the keynote speaker at the Eastern Region Campus Compact Conference. She is a faculty member at Harvard. She runs the uh, Safra Center for Ethics there. Um, She's a kind of legendary academic. She was the youngest dean in the history of the University of Chicago, uh, dean of humanities at age 32. She holds doctorates, one in classics, one in, I think, political theory, one from Cambridge, I guess, one from Harvard. She's just an extraordinarily accomplished academic. But this book is about her cousins uh, kind of getting sucked into the criminal justice system and the impact it had on his life and on the life of her family. Um, And it's a really powerful book that is I mean, it's just like an interesting and compelling human story. It is also um, a, an indictment of the criminal justice system, kind of as seen through the eyes of this this one family. Um, so I really highly recommend it. And, um, you know, it really is the kind of book you read, like you just zoom through it because it's extremely compelling. Um, so, but Danielle Allen did not talk about that at the conference. So I thought I'd share a little bit about some of the things, uh, kind of the big themes that emerged. She gave a great talk. So the ERCC conference theme was education for democracy, innovating in complex times. And Danielle Allen started with a talk about, I would say roughly what, she believes the content of education for democracy has to be focused on. And in a surprise twist, uh, she basically thinks it's about 
kind of learning what we learn from good committee work. That was her argument. Uh, wow. She was like, yeah, when you're on a good committee, what you find yourself doing is sitting around with a group of people, identifying a goal, figuring out how you're going to pursue that goal, deciding how you're going to know when you've gotten there, and then choosing some action steps, putting them into practice and seeing how it works. And she gave the talk was about how it has come to be the case over the last maybe 30, 40, 50 years that so much power has been removed both from citizens and from our legislatures and why it's the case that we need to redevelop this capacity for this kind of shared work of identifying goals, choosing means for pursuing them and then trying them in practice. And it was it was a very uh, it was a really good sort of again, it was like a surprising talk the way she put it together. And but it led back to this, I think, things that are both reinforcing of what we're doing, the experiential nature of our work, the idea that people have to actually practically work together to solve problems, but also helped give some greater clarity about why we need to do it that way. Uh, So I found that really powerful. Uh, there I some love other- that. I love that. Can I just say briefly, oh, I, told, ahead, I, I wasn't there for it, but I totally agree. One of the things I've tried to talk to campuses about a little bit on this idea of dialogue is you'll see them jump right into, well, we want dialogue. So we're going to have dialogue about race. And like they just jump right into all these huge issues. I'm like, why don't you have dialogue about parking on your campus? Or what the dining hall is serving? Like things you can actually make decisions about. And show people how it's done. And those are super contentious issues, too, by the way. (laughs) Yeah. So this I I won't give her entire talk, but just you're saying that, which I think is a great point and a great application of her point to college campuses. Part of what she argued was that in the switch from Keynesian economics, which is right about spending government money to move the economy forward, to monetarism, which is about the Federal Reserve Bank making key economic decisions, essentially the power to drive the economy was taken from the legislature to an unelected piece of the executive branch. And she said one of the things that led to, especially in the context of the uh, social movements of the 60s and 70s and other changes in society, was cultural issues taking over the legislative space. So whereas, you know, you used to have arguments about how much should we spend on building roads and how much should we spend. And those are things you can compromise about. And those are things where people can see a little bit more of this and a little bit less of that. And you can put on on the big cultural issues. There's like no ground for compromise. And they become these occasions for grandstanding and whatever. And I think it's exactly as you were saying, the more abstract the issue or the more yes or no, the the harder it is, the more concrete and the more it's like, well, we could have 60 percent of our food sourced locally or 80 percent or 20 percent. And we could make a goal of increasing it each year. And now we're doing some practical things. But if it's like, are we yeah, you know, are we going to end some horrible practice that's a global phenomenon, probably not from our campus. And then there's just nothing. It seems paralyzing. So, yeah. uh, So I think I just ended up babbling incoherently there. But I'm just saying I think you're exactly right. Uh, So let's see other things that were really um, interesting and compelling at the conference. One was um, and, and this made 
what Danielle Allen was asking us to do seem a little bit harder. Uh, so Adam Gizmondi, who is at the Institute for Democracy and Higher Education at Tufts University, gave a talk about the explosion of misinformation and disinformation uh in social media and digital space more generally. And it just made one realize, like, if you're going to sit down and do some work together to solve some problems, you might have to agree about what are those problems and what's the magnitude of them and what does some you know evidence show about different attempts to solve them. And in a world where getting agreement on those things is so difficult because of the degree of mis and disinformation. Uh, it was just, it was a, like a splash of cold water after the excitement of getting people together in committees, you know, it was very, so that was, and then there was a really good panel on, uh, on social innovation and its relationship to democracy work. I thought that was great. Um, so, you know, that I, sort of thinking about social innovation work in significant part as actually doing that practical work of bringing people together to identify and seek to solve problems. So rather than being an alternative to the life of democracy, which I think is somehow how that, you know, sometimes how that work is presented, this was a way, I mean, kind of what emerged for me out of the conversation was a way of reframing it as democratic work, or at least work that can help build the muscles for democratic participation. Uh, yeah, so there was there was a lot of good stuff. Um, and then, as I mentioned, we had this really good conversation about local politics and student involvement, campus involvement uh, and the challenges uh, that come with that and opportunities. So that was my extended pop culture corner where I snuck in a summary of every single session. No, there were many, many more sessions. It was a really good conference. Well, I'm sorry, Emily. I missed it. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're sorry you weren't there as well. What do you got pop culture wise? OK, so this I will say. So yesterday was April Fool's Day and I normally don't pay a lot of attention to it. But I think this maybe this year I needed some humor and I was just very much enjoying April Fool's Day. Um, I will say first and foremost that my son's amazing first grade teacher convinced the students that there is an animal called a Lerpaloof. And taught them all about the Lerpaloof for an entire session and then revealed that that is April Fool spelled backwards. And it doesn't really exist. My son was just loving it. Um, But I will also say that, you know, corporations really stepped up their April Fool's game this year. One I will point to, Duolingo is like the language learning app. And yes, yeah. if you never used it, one of the features of it is that it will it's, it'll send you push notifications and like, you know, you didn't do your lesson today kind of stuff. So their April Fool's joke was that they were going to start doing in-person push uh, notifications where the little Duolingo owl bird, I, I, I don't know, will, yeah, I will actually come and either be encouraging, disappointed or passive aggressive. <laughs> It's really funny. The website about it is hilarious, and there were lots of great Twitter jokes about it. So I just really enjoyed April Fool's Day this year. Oh, and the final thing with that is that apparently in Budapest, they do a silly walk on April Fool's Day, and there's video of it online. And it's also really funny and seems like a great distraction from life. So is it? possible that's a meta april fools like that you were fooled into thinking that well people in budapest do a silly walk i mean they did do it but maybe it's meta that 
it was an April Fool's joke itself? I don't yeah. know. Uh, I'm, I have a certain degree of skepticism about that, although I don't have any reason to. Uh, I shared with you off uh, air or whatever that the uh, Financial Times headline, which I very much enjoyed, April Fool's Day canceled due to current state of reality. Uh, and as someone who is, I am Brexit obsessed. I don't yeah. know. Did you see the nudist stuff yesterday? Because see, that could have been April Fool's, but I don't think it was. There were nude nude Brexit protesters. <laughs> I did not. I did not see that. Unless I got tricked by that. But I think that really happened. I mean, that, that seems sort of more intrinsically plausible than a national silly walk there or whatever. I, don't, uh, I didn't say but, it was national. <laughs> <laughs> now listen. Uh, yeah, I mean. You look I, Okay, there's a BBC story about it. Which? The nude protesters. But, and, or the silly and walkers. And the silly walk. Okay. Uh there's a headline, so I'm now checking this, and I'm just seeing a headline somewhere that says Brexit is going terribly, and so is this nude protest in Parliament. <laughs> so that uh, yeah, there were like butts stuck to windows. I don't know. It was it's it's a lot. <laughs> it's a it's lot not, to take. Yeah, in. it's hard. Yeah, I'm not sure. It's very hard issue to protest on because there's just so much confusion. It would be hard to know what any particular nude protest was intended to achieve in the context of the catastrophe that is Brexit. So so I guess what I'm saying is in the future, all you listeners, if you are planning to engage in a nude protest, you want to be very focused on what be, you're seeking. Be clear about your theory of change there. Yeah, How does nudity exactly. connect How to? How does nudity connect to change? Exactly. <laughs> That's all we're saying. It's not too much to ask. Uh, this is a family podcast. So we'll probably have to leave it there. Yes. Uh, all right. I think we have achieved everything that could you know, be achieved on a podcast today. That's my view. Uh and uh, so, Emily, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to engage in these important conversations. <laughs> Anytime. Uh, so that's it from us here at Compact Nation Podcast. Thank you all for listening. Don't forget to rate and review our show. If you have questions or suggestions, you can email us at podcast at compact.org or join us on social media with the hashtag CompactNationPod. And I think that's all we've got. See you later. Compact Nation podcast comes to you from Campus Compact's national headquarters in Boston, Massachusetts. Our hosts are Marisol Morales, Emily Shields, and me, Andrew Seligson. Our producer is Molly Leeper. Music is by Andrew Savage. As always, you can find us online at compact.org slash podcast or on social media at hashtag compactnationpod. Thanks for listening. And remember, until you're satisfied that the world is good enough, keep doing something.